Thanks, guys. Thanks, worship team. What a great time of worship. There's something really cool that happens when we as a church contend for one another. And uh, as I was, as we were worshiping, I was just looking around the room. And because I'm your pastor, there's a lot of you who I actually know the victory you're praying for right now. And I just started looking around the room and just praying for others' victories and praying for the breakthrough in others. And I watched some of you as you were worshiping, and I know that you weren't just praying for the breakthrough for yourself. You were contending for somebody else's breakthrough. And I don't know if there's a better, more beautiful picture of what the church actually does is we contend for each other. And the way that we fight our battles is we worship and we pray. We hit our knees for one another. We love each other. We care for each other. We pour out ourselves in the service of others. And so I just want to say, uh, good job, church. Like, I'm watching you guys do this every week. I'm watching the church act like a family. Uh, and there's the family that you're born into, and then there's the family that God gives you. Uh, and there's something really beautiful about this family at Grace Marietta that we're really grateful to be a part of. So uh, a couple just quick announcements. Um, one is uh, during the sermon today, we're going to try something a little different where there's actually some sermon resources in your QR code. So as you guys have been looking at your uh, the lyrics, there's actually some pictures that I'm going to reference uh, during the sermon. And so you can get the QR code on the chairs behind you or on the tables that you're sitting at, um, and that'll help you as you're going through this. There's also a place where you can do online giving uh, and offering there on there. Uh, I know it's summer, and in summer, everybody starts traveling to the lake and to all different places, and everybody kind of gets crazy and things start happening. The best thing that you can do to help us if you are a, 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 a partner here at Grace Marietta is to set up an online giving thing that's automatic so that there's consistent giving throughout the summer. As many of you guys know, COVID has been difficult on a lot of different churches, a lot of different businesses. It's not been the best thing financially for us here at Grace Marietta, and so consistent giving is really helpful right now. And so if you are a giver and this is your church, just want to encourage you to set up uh, an online giving account there and help us out. Uh, we got really good news this week from the CDC. Anybody excited about that? Anybody like burn your masks or anything like that? I saw like Instagram photos of like fires with masks in it, all those kinds of things. Uh, we are working on a plan right now to kind of re-enter back indoors. Uh, and, uh, but I know that some people have really, really loved being outdoors, and it's been a really exciting thing. I am not as sure that you will love it in the middle of July, though. Uh, and, and so uh, we're working on a plan right now that will include some indoor and outdoor gatherings and some of those kinds of things. And we're really excited to kind of gather back together inside the church uh, as well as to continue to do some things out here. Next week is Pentecost. Uh, if you are not around the Grace family or have not been around the Grace family for many years, um, that's a party for us. And so it is a huge celebration where all of our churches gather together. And this year it's a really special celebration because the family of churches has not gathered together for two years now. Uh, and so we have not been able to gather the churches from all over our communities, from Washington, D.C., all the way to, to Monroe and Athens and all those crew. It feels like Monroe is as far as D.C. Uh, but, but we've not been with those folks, and so we're gathering together next week. Uh, it's in the evening. That's in your announcements on your QR code. I want to just encourage everybody, if you're new to Grace and want to know what we're about, come to Pentecost. Uh, if, you, if you're here and this is your church family, come to Pentecost. Uh, we're going to celebrate the fact that God has moved us in a year of COVID from seven to churches to 10 churches. 
which is pretty big deal. Like we're adding three churches to our family in the middle of all the chaos that's happened over the last year. And so we're going to celebrate that together. We're going to worship together. We're right at this giant amphitheater on Lake Lanier uh, where we're going to be outside looking over the lake. It's got an even better view than the park here. It's going to be incredible. And so just want to encourage you, uh, you don't want to miss it. I know that I know what you're thinking right now. Well, Lanier, that's a long drive, blah, blah, blah. Don't make the drive. I promise you it'll be worth it. It's going to be a great night, and uh, we're really excited about that. We're in a series in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, today, I'm, I'm walking through Nehemiah chapter 6 and chapter 7, and we've been talking about what does it look like to rebuild. Uh, and that idea of when we talk about rebuilding, we're not necessarily talking about a structure or a building or a, a facility. We're not doing a capital campaign right now. We're not asking your money for anything, except for if you didn't pay for your park uh, stuff yet, we'll get those in. Uh, but we're not asking for all those things. We're talking about rebuilding ourselves, like rebuilding our lives, rebuilding our, the, our relationships, rebuilding the world, and kind of taking back what hell has stolen from the church over the last year and a half and what that looks like. And, and we've been really talking practically about Nehemiah kind of wrote the book on leadership. Like there are so many applicable leadership principles that are here over and over and over again through the book of Nehemiah. And so I'm going to try and cover a lot of ground today uh, and walk through two chapters. And then next week, we're going to finish up the book of Nehemiah. And Douglas is going to cover even more ground as he covers like seven chapters. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to jump in. And, and, and I, this week, I was struck by this idea that sometimes you watch somebody do something and you just say, that's what they were created to do. Have you ever seen that? Like, have you ever watched somebody step into their gifting and just say, oh my goodness, that's what you were made for? My, my kids are getting older, and as they get older, I'm starting to see glimpses of this in their life, and there's something really beautiful about it to say, oh, wait a minute, I think that's what you were made for. That's what you were created for. That's the thing. And, and when you watch somebody that's really alive in their gifting, you, we all have this kind of, I wish I could do that mentality. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, a, a friend of mine released a song this week, and I listened to it, and I was like, oh, dear Jesus, that's amazing. Like, thank you, Lord. Like, the words were incredible. Like, the whole thing was just so good. And I just thought, my goodness, that's amazing. I was at the basketball courts this week, and, and a, one of the kids that we've been coaching is he's six foot seven, and he's really good at basketball. And I watched him on three separate possessions get a steal and dunk the basketball on everybody. He was just—he didn't care who was in front of him; he was going to dunk the ball on them. And I thought, oh my goodness, I wish I was six foot seven. <laughs> oh my goodness, I wish I could do that. I don't know if you—if you ever see a piece of art and you're like, oh my goodness, it's so beautiful. I wish I could have created that. I don't know if you've ever read something that somebody wrote and thought, man, it's so creative. It's so insightful. It's so beautiful. I wish I could have done that. I wish I could have done. And when you see somebody operating in their giftedness fully alive, there's something that it does to us. It does it to us in community. I think you create a culture of innovation when people start living into their giftedness. And when people start living into their giftedness and people lead us in worship like we were led this morning and, and, and they bring their gifts to the table, what you get is this beautiful picture of what the church could be. Because what we need is we need our creators to create. We need what God has placed inside of you from the beginning of time to come out of you. But there's something vulnerable about doing this. Are you with me? 
There's something vulnerable about sharing your gift with the world. There's something vulnerable about standing up front and saying, this is the best I got. Here it is. Do you like it? Like I, uh, I don't know if you've ever written something creative or if you've ever drawn a picture or you've ever had a presentation at work that you put your whole heart into and you release it into the world and there's this vulnerability that comes with it. Uh, I walked in that vulnerability this week. A few months ago, I I started dreaming with some friends of mine, and we're launching a a new company. It's called the Kingdom Dreams Initiative. Uh, And and as we started thinking about this and dreaming about this, uh, somebody called us and said, hey, this is what you need to do. And there's this organization called Exponential Ventures that's doing this thing, and what they were doing is they're picking the top 25 ideas that can change the church in the next 25 years, and they're giving you a platform to share your idea, and they're giving you some funding, and they were like, you need to apply for this. And I was like, okay, I'll take funding. Like, I'll take money from anybody, right? I don't. And so we, we filled out the application, and, and it helped us kind of get the idea out there, and we sent it in, and our idea got chosen, and they asked me to go to Austin, Texas this week. And so I went down to Austin, Texas, which, guys, the food in Austin, Texas is three billion times better than the food in Atlanta. <laughs> three billion. Three billion. If you liked barbecue and tacos, oh, Sweet Lord, the Lord is good and gracious and kind when you go to Austin. It, it's just so good. And so I went down there. I went with some friends. And, and I had this moment where I had to present in front of this room. And they set it up like a shark tank thing. Which I'm talking, if you want to worry about being vulnerable in front of people, I had a table it was, all, it was like 15 middle-aged white guys. I don't know why we didn't have any women or people of color on the, yeah, on, on the table, but there was this table of all these middle-aged pastors who were sitting there with their notepad. I started, they started taking notes, and I knew that the moment I was done with my presentation that they were just going to try and poke holes in this kingdom dream that I was releasing to the world. It felt super vulnerable. Like, I never get nervous teaching. And I was so nervous. I was terrified. Like, my hands were shaking. I can't remember the last time I was in front of a group and my hands were shaking. I was so nervous about this. And I got done with it. And the presentation went great. And my first 10 minutes went great. The first, like, 10 questions were amazing. They were like, this is great. We love this. And then there was one guy. You guys know that one guy, don't you? (laughs) I've got some names for him that I can't share while I'm preaching. But there was one guy, right? There's one guy, and this guy just starts asking me ridiculous questions that don't even have anything to do with my idea, right? It's like questions of like, why don't you do this? And I wanted to say, because that's not what we're doing, right? Because that, like, that's a good thing. Other people are doing that. That's not what we're doing. And he asked me seven or eight questions that were just like poking, fighting questions. And at the end of this, I, here, here's, here's how I felt. And I, I know that some of you have felt this way before. At the end of it, I felt like everything went great except for that one guy, and I want to quit. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever had this moment where you're releasing this vulnerable and exciting and this thing that you've been working on? I'd been working on that presentation for three months. I'd been prepared. We'd been dreaming of this thing forever. We tried to answer all the questions, and this guy asked questions that we didn't anticipate because they had nothing to do with what we were doing, right? But all of these questions came out, and it was just this vulnerable thing. And and here's the reality. I think 
Think about, think about the history of Christendom. Think about how many kingdom dreams that God has placed in the hearts of his people that have never come to fruition, that have never been fully birthed because of the criticism of somebody else. Think of how many creators who God has placed inside them this beautiful thing that he wants them to release to the world and give to the world as a gift. And there are people who need that gift, right? God places those things inside of us because there's others who need it. It's this beautiful cycle of creation and this beautiful cycle of, of love and care and service for one another. But think about how many times the artist shows the picture to her friends for the first time and the friend says, I'm not so sure about it. And so she never paints again. Think about the writer who writes the first draft and sends it into the publishing company and gets the rejection letter and says, I'm never writing again. Think about the singer who releases the new song or sings up in front of people for the first time and their voice cracks and so they never sing again. Think about the podcast who the first episode has three listeners and they decide, I'm never releasing another episode again. Think about the business that never gets started. Think about all of the kingdom dreams throughout the history of our faith that have been hijacked by criticism. The church has rarely been in the forefront of innovation. And I think it's because we tend to reject what's new rather than receive it and redeem it. Last week, we talked about the idea of there are things in culture that we reject, there are things that we receive, and there are things that we redeem. But oftentimes, the church's posture is always reject. And it's always to say no to something new, no to something innovative, no to what's happening. When Ephesians actually says there is a good work that has been prepared for you in advance. Like this, think about this. I think this is so beautiful. Think about this. Think about God up in heaven thinking about you. Before you were made, before you were created, there was a father, there was a creator in heaven who was thinking about you. And I like to think of God as a creative God. God is thinking, ooh, I'm going to put a little bit of this in them. I'm going to give them this skill. I'm going to give them this talent. I'm going to give them this heart for these people. I'm going to give them this uh, ability. I'm going to give them this thing. And then let's just see what happens. Let's see what happens when they start living and they fall in love with me and they fall in love with my kingdom and they decide to use that thing that I placed inside of them for the thing that I placed them inside of them to do. And that's true for every single person within the sound of my voice. A creator with intelligent design, has placed a kingdom dream inside of your heart. He's placed a vision. He's placed skills and abilities and giftedness for you to share with the world because the world needs it. But so often, these things get hijacked because we don't get past our fear of rejection and criticism, and so we never have the courage to bring things into the public. Romans says creation waits Creation waits with eager anticipation for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. Who is waiting for your kingdom dream to come to life? Who is waiting for that thing that God has given inside of you to be birthed into the world? Who's waiting for you to write, for you to sing, for you to draw, for you to create, for you to start the business? Who's waiting for you to start those kinds of things? Because these things have been prepared for us well in advance by a beautiful father. And so today I want to talk about what we create and what we invest in. And let's start with Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1. It says, now when Sanballat and Tobiah, now we know about Sanballat and Tobiah. It's interesting that in the story of Nehemiah, these two guys are the second leading characters. 
And they're the villains in this, this idea. They have been from the very beginning trying to hijack the work that Nehemiah is doing. Nehemiah has come because God placed it in his heart to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so he's working on this plan. We're going to rebuild the walls. We're going to restore the city. We're going to make everything new. This is the dream that God's placed inside of me. He started gathering everybody together. But these two guys, Sanballat and Tobiah, notice there's not a lot of people named Sanballat in the world these days. Right? There's a reason why. Uh, and, and, and so they've, all they've tried to do from the very beginning is criticize and hijack and destroy the good work that God had prepared for Nehemiah to do. I would suggest that all of us have a Sanballat or a Tobiah in our lives. All of us. A co-worker, a friend, a neighbor, somebody on the internet. <laughs> right? There's always somebody that's going to try and hijack the work. And so it says, Sanballat and Tobiah, the Geshem and the Arab, the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there were no breaches left in it. Although up to that time, I had not set the doors to the gate. So he had, they built the walls. The walls were in place. All that needed to go was like the hinges on the door. They were working on putting the doors up. And so these guys here, the work is going well. Everything's going great. And they keep going. So Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come, let us meet together in Hakfirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent the messenger to them saying, listen to this. This is how we respond to criticism. I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Can I get an Amen. I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. So why should I stop the work and leave it and come down to you? And they sent for me four more times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner, in the same way. Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter. Right? This is like, I don't know if you've read open letters on the internet, right? We like to write open letters. Pastors get open letters all the time. Like there's, there's open letter here that's laying out the criticism here. And, and, and in all of this, here's what we see Nehemiah doing. He does not let outside voices distract him from his kingdom calling. And it is very easy for any of us when we are innovating, when we are creating, when we're releasing something new to the world to allow the outside voices to stop us from doing the thing that God has placed inside of us to do. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. I love that. He doesn't get distracted by the haters. He doesn't get distracted by the things that are happening over on the side. He doesn't get distracted by all the voices around of us, around him, because he knows the task that he's been given him, and he's secure in the task that God has given him. Uh, according to research by most social psychologists, they'll say that shame inhibits creativity. It keeps us hiding because we feel like we're not worthy or we're not good enough. And so we actually have this identity piece inside of us that doesn't allow us to release what God wants to release into the world. And our brains are actually wired, like neuroscience will actually teach you that our brains are wired with a negativity bias. And the reason, the reason why is because that negativity bias actually keeps us safe, right? So my fear of touching a fire is a good fear that's in my, that's in my mind. And so when I get close to the fire and my hand starts to go back, that's a good impulse, right? It's that negativity bias. But it also does a bad work in us because our ideas and our work rejecting is not life-threatening, but it can be devastating because it feels like a rejection of yourself. It feels like a rejection, and it triggers this shame-negativity bias in your mind, and it triggers all these negative things that begin to happen. 
Uh, a social, social psychologist once did his experiment, and what they did was they walked into a kindergarten class full of kindergartners, and they said to the kindergartners, how many of you are great musicians? And every, every hand went up. They were, he was like, what instrument do you play? I don't play any instruments, but I'm a great musician. Can you sing? No, but I'm a great musician, right? How many of you are great athletes? Everybody raised their hand. And, and the guy was like, I just saw you playing on the playground. I know that that is not true, right? But every kid in the room thinks that they're great. Then he went to a junior high classroom, seventh and eighth graders, middle school. How many of you are great musicians? A couple hands go up in the room. How many of you are great artists? couple hands go up in the room. How many of you are great athletes? couple hands go up in the room. Then he went to a group of 18-year-old seniors in high school. How many of you are great musicians? One hand goes up in the room. How many of you are great athletes? One hand. It was the 6-7 kid that kept dunking on everybody, right? How many of you are great artists? One hand, two hands. There's something that's actually built in us that as we get older, we lose something that was critical to us. We lose the ability to share the kingdom dream that's inside of us. We lose the ability. And, and many would say that what actually happens is the kid at kindergarten who says, I'm a great athlete, tries out for the team and realizes, I'm not a great athlete. The kid that's a musician as a kindergartner tries to sing in third grade at the third grade talent show. And it doesn't, it's like American Idol tryouts, right? It doesn't go well when they used to have, I don't, I don't know what American Idol does anymore. They used to have like the really terrible people that they'd put up there. I don't know if they do that anymore. I don't even, is American Idol still a thing? Is it? It is? Okay. Well, we'll pray for them. All right. But, so the, but, but what happens is there's this thing that happens where we just stop. We just stop creating. We stop believing that there's something in us. One of the greatest killers of kingdom dreams has often been the opinions of others. And so what we need to do with criticism is we actually learn, need to learn what we actually do with criticism. And so we weigh criticism. That's what we do. So when criticism comes, what we have to do is not react and respond to it, not even fight it, but we need to discern it. And so when somebody comes with you with something that's critical about something you're doing or something you're creating or about what you're doing or all those kinds of things, I've had to learn this as a pastor because I get, some, I get occasional criticism as a pastor. I know that's surprising to some of you, but occasionally I'll get an email that people are unhappy. And people have been really sending lots of emails during, during COVID, right? It's been like, the, let's send more emails to criticize. Uh, and so there is this criticism that comes occasionally, and, and when it does, like, I can't just reject it because it's annoying to me. I can't just reject it and say, like, I'm giving this up because even sometimes, even when it's given to me in a terrible way, right? I have this tendency, like, I'm going to listen to you if you give me criticism in the right way. But if you give me criticism in the wrong way, I'm going to, like, it doesn't matter what you just said. I'm not going to pay attention to it. What the kingdom of God teaches us is to discern criticism, is that we receive it and we weigh it. We say, is there any truth in this? And if there's truth in it, I, I take it to the Lord and say, all right, Lord, is there any truth in this criticism? Is there any truth in this that I need to, to grow in? Is there something here that's revealing something that's in my heart that I need to repair or fix or restore or rebuild? Or is this just criticism for the sake of criticism and I need to wipe the dust off my feet and move on to the next town? And what we have to do is we actually have to learn to reject the criticism that is untrue. And do exactly what Nehemiah does. I, I, I love that Nehemiah doesn't try and fight and argue with Sanballat and Tobiah about the justification of what he's doing. He doesn't try and persuade them that the wall is a good idea. 
He doesn't try and talk them into his vision. He just says, I'm doing a great work. If you don't want to do it, that's fine. Stay over there. But I'm not coming down because I'm doing the thing that God's called me to do. Too many of us, we come down. Right? We start the thing that God's asked us to do. We start the thing that we've been invited into. We start the kingdom calling that's in our hearts. And then as soon as the criticism comes, we step down instead of keep going and, and have some grit and some perseverance and some determination in it. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt was traveling in the middle of Europe and gave his most famous speech ever. And it was in a moment in, our, in the history of our culture where cynicism and aloofness and detachment were considered worthy practices. And everybody was criticizing everybody, and Roosevelt stood up and he gave the talk. It's called The Man in the Arena. Anybody heard of this? Here's what it says. It is not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have been better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, but comes up short again and again, but because there is no effort without error and shortcoming... But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms? Who knows great devotions? Who spends himself in a worthy cause? Who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement? And who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly. So that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. The man in the arena. All right. Can I just say, we need more men and women in the arena of the church. We need more men and women who will step in the arena of stepping into their kingdom gifts in a way that is scary, in a way that is hard, in a way that is difficult. We need more people who are stepping into their callings over and over and over again. So the, here's the, the, the passage goes on in verse 5, and, and here's what happens. Because when, when, when criticism can't derail you, the, the, next, the next method will always be falsehood. Right? So when criticism gives way, it often gives way to falsehood. Verse 9, it says, In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent a servant, open letter. And in it, it was written, It is reported among the nations of Geshem. And it also says that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that's why you're building a wall. And according to these reports, you want to become king. And you've set up prophets to proclaim you concerning all of Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. He starts to just make stuff up. None of this has been said. This is not Nehemiah's plan. None of this is what Nehemiah's wanted. It's not true. It's just blatantly false stuff. And so then I sent to him and I said, no such thing has ever been said or done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind, and they are wanting to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from their work and it will be not be done. But listen to what Nehemiah says, oh God, strengthen my hands. I will not come down is the first statement he makes. The second statement is, oh God, strengthen my hands. The attack was kind of a rumor. And rumors often come in this form. Hey, pastor, I don't know if you know this, but some people are saying, You're, you got friends that have some people? You got some people you know in your life that have some people? I don't know if you know, but there's some people that are saying this. There's some people that are, uh, there's some friends, there's some, there's some talk on the side. It often comes on this kind of falsehood, this accusation of anonymous charges. And Nehemiah immediately identifies this for what it is and says, this is, this is just a false charge. 
There's no sedition here. There's nothing bad happening here. I'm not trying to become king. I'm not trying to become a prophet. I'm not trying to take over with power. I'm trying to rebuild the walls for the sake of the city and for the good of the city. Uh, and, and, and here's what he realizes. He realizes that the battle belongs to the Lord. So often, when we step into the arena, when we step out with our kingdom dreams, we fail to realize that the battle actually belongs to the Lord, that he is the one who's going to fight for them. And so we can stop engaging with certain people. Uh, there, there's a, a great phrase I've heard here in Georgia many times, and that is, when you wrestle with pigs, you always get dirty. I didn't say that in the city, but I, I've learned that here. Like when you wrestle with pigs, you always get dirty. And so oftentimes our temptation is to start to wrestle out and try and, try and reason and argue with people who are just throwing falsehoods and accusations and unfair things at you. When actually what Nehemiah does is he says, all right, Lord, I'm surrendering this battle to you. You deal with their hearts. I can't fix their hearts. I can't solve this problem. I can't reason Sanballat and Tobiah into anything else. And so, Lord, the battle belongs to you. Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool finds no pleasure in understanding, but delights in airing their own opinions. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. There's a lot of fools airing their opinions these days. Over and over and over again. And when you get in the mud and start wrestling with the fools, you end up looking foolish. Finally, uh, they, uh, I'll just skip this section. And, and it, they, they say, here's what you need to do, Nehemiah. You need to go to the temple and you need to hide. It's what Solomon did. When Solomon feared for his life, he went into the temple because in the temple they believed that no one could kill them. And so they tried to tell Nehemiah, they're coming for you. They're coming tonight. Go hide in the temple. And at best, they wanted him to stop the work. At worst, they were legitimately coming after him. And Nehemiah continues to say, I'm doing the work. It doesn't matter what threat is here, I'm doing the work, and it doesn't matter what strategy you bring at me, I'm doing the work. And so we continue to step into these places of doing the work. God is the one who's going to fight for us. I'm not, I cannot come down because I'm doing the thing that God... It's almost like Nehemiah has tunnel vision around his vision. He is so captivated by the vision that God has given him that nothing can distract him from it. And so when God really awakens us to the dream that's in our heart, we get this tunnel vision of this is all I see and this is all I can pursue. Chapter 7 is full of names. So if you read through chapter 7, it feels like the boringest chapter in all of the Bible. Here's what it says in chapter 7, verse 5. It says, so God put it on my heart, Nehemiah said, to assemble the nobles and the officials and the common people for registration by families. And I found the ge genealogical record of those who had been first to return. And this is what I found written. And it's just names. It's just names of people over and over and over again. And it's easy for us to go through those sections of Scripture and just, like, I can't pronounce half these names. I don't know who these people are. They're mentioned once in Scripture. I'm going to completely disregard what's happening here. But I actually think there's something really, really beautiful that's happening there. Uh, if you got your phones, open it up, and I want you to look at those two pictures uh, that are under sermon resources. The first of those pictures is a picture of a, a group of people outside of a church. It's that big group. It's a black and white photo. It looks like a lot of kids in that picture. If you move from left to right in that picture, there are two little girls standing at the front. The first is wearing a white dress and a hat, and the one standing beside her, you might have to zoom in a little bit, the one standing beside her has black long hair, 
is making an unhappy face and is holding a white paper. Can everybody see that person? That's my grandma. That's my grandma. She's standing out in front of Third Street Church of God in 1925. The picture below that is a check. It was written in 1923, June 7th, to the Church of God for $135 by my great-grandfather. $135, I did the research this week, is the equivalent of about $2,000 now. They were building a new church. They had, they had become a part of this community, and my grandmother was going to church there. She had friends, even though she's making an unhappy face, she had friends there. They were loving the church that they were a part of, and the church said, we need to build a new building, 1923. We need to build a new building. And my great-grandfather said, we're going to help with that. We're going to invest in that. So some pastor somewhere, I don't even know the pastor's name at that time. I tried to figure it out. I tried to do the research this week. My mom loves these kinds of things, but she could not figure out the name of the pastor. But whoever that pastor was stood in front of the church and said, I have a dream for this community. I have a dream for this world. I have a dream of how to make the world a better place. I think you could make an argument to say that's one of the things that God put in his heart and prepared for him in advance to do, was to actually create this church, to build this building, to do these kinds of things. And he stood in front of the church, and my great-grandfather heard the message and said, you know what, 1923, I'm going to write a check to help make this happen. And what he did was he invested in somebody else's kingdom dream. This is what the church does. We invest in each other's vision of a better world. We invest in each other's vision and talents. We call out the best in one another. We say, you've got it in you to do that thing. We encourage them. We step forward. We resource it. We love. We care. And I can tell you right now, as I look back at the history, that's almost 100 years ago. But as I look back on that history, I can tell you that investment was the best investment my family ever made in anything. Because you know what happened? My grandma grew up in that church. And in 1935, my grandfather, his father died. They lived in Kukik, Iowa. His, grandfather, or his father died, and when his father died, they moved to Dayton, Ohio. And when they moved to Dayton, Ohio, they had nothing. They were poor. They were struggling. They were living in like a shack. All, the grand, all of his brothers and sisters were all in the same bedroom. It was a really difficult situation. And so his mother started listening to the radio. And when she started listening to the radio, she heard a preacher on the radio who was preaching about the good news of Jesus. It was the pastor of Third Street Church of God. And there were people that were singing on the radio every week. And guess who one of those people that was singing was? It's that little girl in the dress in the picture. My grandma was singing on the radio show every single week. And so she called this church and said, I don't know, but we don't have any food. We don't have any money. I don't know how we're going to make it. And the pastor showed up at her door that day, and they helped serve her and care for her. And my grandfather started going to this church. And pretty soon, my grandfather noticed there's a cute girl that's singing up there, and I like her. And so Noni Taylor, Noni Hudson, married Ralph Bud Taylor. That's, I love the names of all the great-grandparents. And, and so they, they, they started calling it their church. At the same time this was happening, in 1937, a woman named Edwa, Edna Hook moved from Kentucky to Dayton, Ohio. That's my other grandma. She took a secretary job at one of the factories that was around, and one of her friends said, you've got to come to my church. There's great things happening. So she showed up to the church. A few years later, my grandfather came home from the war. Dale Hardman, 
came home from the war, and he was hurting, and he was broken, and he had a friend, his roommate, and they, were, they had both come home from the war, and they didn't know what to do, and somebody said, you need to go to the church. That's what you need to do. If you're, if you're broken, this is how you get fixed. So they show up at this Third Street Church of God. They both hear this preaching, and they come to know Jesus, and he notices this cute girl named Edna, and all of a sudden, they get married. Fast forward. Bud and Noni have a, have a daughter named Debbie. Edna and Dale have a son named Gary. That's my mom and dad. They meet in the youth group at the church. They start dating when they're in eighth grade. They get married when they're 19 in 1972, all at the same church. And in 1974, they give birth to, the, to me. <laughs> That's what they did. They give birth to me. And I came to know Jesus at that church. And my sister came to know Jesus at that church. And my cousins came to know Jesus at that church. And my aunts and uncles came to know Jesus at that church. If you go back 100 years, there's over 12 people from my family who have gone into full-time Christian ministry because of that church and because of the ministry of that church. $135. And I would say that's the best investment anybody's ever made. Every bit of our life's an investment, guys. It is. Every day we got 24 hours, and we discern what we do with our investment. We discern how we invest our time. We can watch Netflix. We can read a book. We can go take a hike. We can eat good food, especially if we're in Austin. We can do all these different things. We always have these moments of, like, I get to choose what I'm investing in. We get to choose how we invest our money and our resources. We get to choose how we invest our time. We get to choose what we do with everything. And I would just suggest to you today that the greatest investment that you can ever make is the investment in somebody else's kingdom dream. Like as I was studying for this this week and as I was reading this this week, I just, I want to double down for the rest of my life in helping other people's dreams come to life. I want this place to be the birthplace of hundreds of kingdom dreams that change the world. And I want somebody to look back a hundred years from now and say, there was some pastor, I don't know his name, but he built a park. And we came out there to eat one day and to play basketball and grandma met grandpa. <laughs> like This is what multi-generational faithfulness looks like. This is what the church looks like. This is who we're called to be over and over and over again in the world. And so today... I wonder where you're tempted to shrink back from the things that you were made to create. I wonder what's the voice that's in your head that says you can't do that. What's the voice that says, no, 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 that's too much work. It's too hard. It's too difficult. Don't release that to the world. And I want you to remember that there is a good work that was prepared for you in advance by the Father, that he looked at you and put it in you because he wants it to come, wants it to come out because it's good. There's a gift that you need to give to the world that you were created to give to the world. And then where do you need to invest in somebody else's kingdom dream? What's the thing that you need to say, I need to call out the goodness in this person. I need to call out this gift in somebody else. I need to tell them they can do it. I need to fund them. I need to help them. I need to serve them. I need to walk beside them. Uh, like pray this week and say, Lord, who is the person? Who's the person that I'm supposed to call out the dreams of? And listen, this is what happens with the next generation, guys. 
I'm telling you right now, I'm the father of a bunch of teenage kids, and I know that the world every single day is telling them what they're not, and the church has to tell them who they are. We have to fight for the next generation, guys. We have to stand at them and look at them and look them in the eyes and say, this is what you were made for. This is a better investment. This is the kingdom, and it's beautiful, and it's good, and it's inside of you, and I see that Jesus placed that inside of you, and I want to see it come out for the world to know, and we've got to call out the good in them so that the world can see it. Over and over and over again, I, like it takes a village to raise a child, and we need this village, this community to be the people who looks at our children and says, this is so beautiful, and it's inside of you. I don't care if they're two or if they're 19. We need to look them in the eyes and say, this is what's in you, and God created you, and it's beautiful, and it's good, and the world is waiting for you. Creation waits with eager anticipation for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed, and a hundred years to the Father is like a minute. Isn't that beautiful? Like God is already scheming about a hundred years from now. There's somebody who's not even born yet who's going to pastor this church in the future. And God's like, this is what they're going to need. I'm going to put in them a heart for justice. I'm going to put in them a heart for reconciliation. I'm going to put in them a heart for worship. I'm going to give them the gift of teaching. I'm going to give them the gift of shepherding and love and care. It's already happening. And so we need each other. As I was reading this chapter 7, and I just read all of these names that I couldn't pronounce and this long genealogy of all of these different people, I just started thinking about that picture with my grandma. And here's my guess. My guess is there's a lot of grandkids who could point to that picture and say, here's the story of my family. Here's the generational faithfulness that happened. Here's the kingdom thing that came to life in them. And the question for us is, how do we become the people that do that? And the best way I know is that we fight for each other. We literally stand in the gaps for one another. I'm sorry, guys. This week's been really heavy in our church family. And there's a bunch of things going on that not everybody knows about. And there's lots of people that are hurting and lots of crises and lots of things that it's just heavy and it's hard. And so as I was reading this, I just had a strong sense that we're called to pray for the victory in somebody else's life. That we're called to lay down everything we can for each other. And that when that stuff starts to happen, we start to see the breakthrough. And we start to see the victory. And so here's what I want to do, and this may seem kind of weird. I'm going to ask the band to come back up, and they're going to close us out in a song, and we're going to move into a time of communion. If you didn't receive communion, some guys will walk around with that, and you can just take that at any time. But here's what I want to ask us to do kind of right now is I want you to think of who's the person that you need to contend for. Who's the person right now that you're called to stand with, to stand beside, to resource, to love, to care for? To battle for. And maybe as we're worshiping, I don't know, I, I, I love the fact that we're a church family and, and we just got mask things so we can pray for each other a little better now. Uh, I, I've been waiting for a long time for people to be able to put hands on shoulders and pray for one another. And I think this is the first day we're allowed to do it in a long time. And so I, I just want to, I just want to call our church to pray for one another today. 
And if you know somebody in the room who's hurting, I just want you to come beside them and put your hand on them and pray for them. If you know somebody and you see something in them that you love and that you respect, I just want you to walk beside them and say, thank you. I see this in you and it's a beautiful gift from the kingdom. I want us to just take a moment and encourage each other and, and that will take moving around this area, which I know some of y'all, it's, it's hard work, but I'm believing that even the extroverts can step out in faith and just pray for somebody. And if you don't know who to pray for, if you're new to our community or new to our family, just pick somebody. Like just look out there and say, I'm, I'm praying for you. I don't know who that guy is, but I'm praying for that guy. You don't have to go up and touch their shoulder or pray for them out in person, but you can if you want. But let's just open this space up. Let's take communion and remember the blood and the body of Jesus. Remember that Jesus withheld nothing from the people he loved. He laid down his life for his friends, and he asked us to do the same. So let's open up some space to just pray for one another, to love one another, to encourage one another. And to believe that a victory is coming. So Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would use this space, that you would use this moment. I pray for an anointing of your spirit to fall on this place right now in the name of Jesus. I pray that you would give us words of knowledge. I pray that you would give us words of prophecy. I pray that you would give us words of encouragement. I pray right now in the power of your Holy Spirit that you would release the kingdom dreams that have been distracted and taken away from someone's heart and that you would restore it right now in the power of your name. I pray that the armies of heaven would join with us as we celebrate and as we pray for one another. And I pray that you would bring a breakthrough and a victory. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for this family. We thank you for this church. We thank you for this community that is ours. I pray that you would teach us to love one another well. It's in your name we pray. Amen.